The Science Inside Podcast. This is The Science Inside. Good evening and welcome to The Science Inside. This is the show that brings you the latest news and events happening in the world of science and technology. I am your host, Bridget LeBerre, and in this week's show, we are talking about genetics. Yes, genetics, which are the origins of each and every individual in the world. And this is what makes individuals unique. And our DNA holds many, many clues um, to what an uh, individual has inherited from their parents and which of those traits do they share with their siblings. And of course, which of those are they likely to transfer to future generations? And why we are talking about genetics today, it is because genetics are the biological database of our individuality. individuality. Now, our DNA also uh, is able to inform of the kind of diseases one is susceptible to. And this makes genetics and increasingly compelling signs to look into and there's a need for precision medicine medicine which is custom made and built to communicate very well with our genetic makeup or our structure now a research team in the sydney brenner institute for molecular bioscience um in short, SBIMB at the Wits University are currently investigating some of the biggest and most compelling compelling questions regarding modern science with the aim uh, to contributing to one or more of science goals with a focus on sub-Saharan African populations. Now, the Institute is a multidisciplinary research institution dedicating dedicated to investigating the molecular and genomatic etiology of diseases among African populations and they have developed an application from scratch and tonight we discuss their interesting innovation a genetics app which was created by four WITS postgraduate uh, students namely Mahtab Hyatt, George DeRosha, Heather Seymour and Natalie uh, Smith and they aim to inform and educate young people through this innovation and uh, all this and more a bit later in the show and of course we um on social media, our handles are Facebook. Um, uh, on Facebook is uh, the Science Inside, and you can get in touch with us on our WhatsApp line on 084-078-4912. You can also tweet uh, us and have a conversation with us at VowFM hashtag Science Inside. But uh, obviously, we will look more into uh, these stories a bit later. And um, now we go into our news making headlines tonight. This week's Science Headline. A new, a new research finds a lot of unnecessary medical of prescribing of antibiotics in South Africa and the University of Pretoria scientists capture the first image of the black hole. Good evening. I am Bridgie Libere with your Science Inside News. Three quarters of patients sent to doctors and clinics in South Africa were prescribed antibiotics apparently for no reason, a new study has found. The study was conducted by researchers from the University of the Witwatersrand and London School of Economics and Political Science who sent undercover patients to 186 private general practitioners and 73 public clinics. Before going incognito, the mystery patients were, were 
weren't sick at all, apparently, and they received intensive training to make sure they all tell the same story to the doctors. So, um... Masibulele Lunika, Lunika spoke to Dr. Duane Blau, a senior researcher in the Center for Health Policy in the Witt School of Public Health, who co-presented the findings recently to tell us more about the research and what inspired it and how it was conducted. The study wasn't in hospitals. That's, uh, it was actually with um, primary care providers. So that was it's with nurses working in public clinics and with private GP. And we were trying to understand something about uh, how much unnecessary antibiotic prescribing is happening in primary care. There hasn't been a lot of research in primary care. Most of the research is in hospitals. So we used uh, quite an interesting method called standardized patients. And that's also one of the sort of novel things about the study because there hasn't been a lot of research in South Africa on using standardized patients. They're seen as a good method for trying to evaluate quality of care. So what we do is uh, we send field workers that we have trained to present a clinical case. So they go as patients to public clinics and to private GPs. And then when they're there, they present a particular clinical scenario. Um, So they give a particular history and they are trained to answer specific questions. So our our standardized patients were um, trained to present this case of of somebody who's recovering from a cold uh, but now has a cough. But they were all young, healthy people and no evidence of anything serious and no pneumonia or something like that so they're all completely healthy so none of them should have got antibiotics and then what we did was we evaluated whether or not they were given an antibiotic when they presented with this story both to the public sector and to the private sector so the main findings of the study that were in the release uh, the main results were that in the public clinic 78 percent of our standardized patients were given an antibiotic when they don't need it and in the in, by private gps it was 67 percent were given an antibiotic any any antibiotic According to Dr. Blau, these findings lead to dire consequences in healthcare, including what is known as antibiotics resistance in times of real need. It's true, you know, lots of very resistant superbugs and also um, lots of antibiotics are used, particularly for sick people. Uh, in fact, the majority of antibiotics are actually given in primary care. And so one of the big problems is when antibiotics are given when they're not necess- not needed. Uh, and one of the big problem areas is what we call respiratory tract infections, you know, like colds and um, ear infections and throat infections. Most of those are caused by viruses. So antibiotics don't work because antibiotics only work against bacteria. And when you use antibiotics in people who don't need them, that drives a selection pressure to create sort of mutations that result in antibiotic resistance. So this unnecessary use of antibiotics, particularly for respiratory tract infections like a cold or something, uh, is one of the big problems in driving the resistance uh, of antibiotics, of, anti- of bacteria to antibiotics. And, and that's a big public health problem because we're running out of drugs that we need to treat people when they need antibiotics. And that's not needed. So the problems around that are, as we've said, it drives antibiotic resistance but it also has other problems like it's a waste of resources and a waste of money and it's not just about um, respiratory tract infections it could also be about other drugs 
you know, sexually transmitted infections, uh, urinary tract infections, brain infections, all of these are important infections that we need antibiotics. And if you get infected with one of those, you might, um, it might be a resistant strain. And it has nothing to do with whether or not you've individually had antibiotics before. So it's, a, it's at, a, at a population level that these problems develop. In our second story, two scientists from Pretoria and Rhodes Universities are among a groundbreaking group of international researchers behind capturing the first ever uh, image of a black hole. The image shows the black hole at the center of Messier 87, a massive galaxy in the nearby Virgo galaxy cluster. This black hole resides 55 million light years from Earth and has a mass of 6.5 billion times that of the sun taken by the event horizon telescope eht a global scientific collaboration involving eu funded scientists the image provides visual evidence for the existence of black holes and pushes the boundaries of modern science the the breakthrough was announced by the eht consortium last week in a series of six papers published in a special issue of the astrophysical journal letters. Professor Roger Dean uh, from the University of Pretoria's Department of Physics and his postdoctoral fellow Dr. Inian uh, Nataraj, Natarajan rather, from Rhodes University's Department of Physics and Electronics helped build a highly realistic simulation of the Earth-sized EHT instrument that enables astronomers to better understand uh, real observations, discriminate between theoretical black hole uh, models and provide insights into the characteristics of the telescope itself. The EHT collaboration involves more than 200 researchers from Africa, Asia, Europe and North uh, and South America. It links telescopes around the globe to form an Earth-sized virtual telescope using the same technique as the African Very Long Baseline Interform Entry, um, V. LBI in short uh, network but a much higher frequency enabling um, an an even sharper view of black holes Um, supermassive black holes are a prediction of Einstein's general theory of relativity and this first image of the black hole shadow has been announced during the uh, centennial year of the historic experiment that first confirmed this theory Dean and Natarajan's uh, contribution is supported by the University of Pretoria and by a grant awarded to Rhodes University which is funded by the Department of Science and Technology and the National Research Foundation. Recapping your top stories this hour, new research finds lots of unnecessary medical prescribing of antibiotics in South Africa and the University of Pretoria scientists um, uh, help capture the first ever image of the black hole. That was quite interesting, right, Masibulele? I mean, with with antibiotics, if you do over-prescribe them, we do know that you you do uh, you can't develop antibiotics um, um, resistance. And at a time when you may really, really, really need those antibiotics, they may not work. 
incredibly incredibly uh, amazing discovery i just admire the way in which they went about researching these findings uh if you imagine people going undercover uh, and actually surprising uh doctors of god and actually discovering this this huge uh thing and and, and, and it's actually a, a practice that's apparently been happening um and it's it's a, it's a it raises uh quite a need for concern when you see of course the consequences now uh of people then uh having now resistance to antibiotics because then in times of real need then um it becomes a real issue yeah yeah definitely but anyway we do not have much time left really we do still have much content to go through so we are going to jump right into our first story and our first story is on the genetics app that um that that was created by vitsi students and uh, this is uh, really a, a novel um i you know idea yeah. and uh, a novel creation right i fully agree i fully agree and it's always nice to see students coming up with these innovations yeah because i mean um an app to teach young people especially people who are just glued to their lcd screens uh all day long so uh what a great way to educate them by (laughs) looking at that blue screen blue screen that we all uh we 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 as you know parents don't really (laughs) like that blue screen yeah no mine mine definitely don't (laughs) (laughs) what are you one of those people i'm one of those kids (laughs) who are always on their phone and then when you scream them out and you're like you you don't hear you'd have to you'd have to scream at least a hundred times yeah i i really don't like that but anyway uh four postgraduate students at the University of Sydney Brenner Institute for Molecular Bioscience, SBIMB in short, and the Division of Human Genetics in the School of Pathology run the VITS Human Genetics, uh, Genetics Outreach Program. And they have developed this genetics app to help South African learners and citizens at large to understand genetics and what actually makes them unique. So uh, Scope, as they call themselves, is a genetics. The genetics app was launched at the African Society of Human Genetics meeting in Rwanda in September last year. And uh, we found out about this app and uh, from its two uh, creators, the chairperson of Scope, Maktab Hayat, and the secretary of Scope in the app development uh, team, uh, George Derosha. So um, it was quite impressive how, um, you know, when they presented this app, everybody in in Kigali apparently wanted um, this app and they actually wanted the app to be translated in... Yeah, in all these uh, languages from all over the world. But obviously, it's a South African app. It would need to be translated (laughs) to our other 10 official languages. So, um, yeah, right now it's still in English. But uh, obviously, in in, in future, they would like to... um, to, to expand yeah to, to expand a bit more on it so um i think for now let us just take a quick break right. and then thereafter we can return with more on the story this is the science inside
Welcome back to the Science Inside. This is it. And before we went into the break, we were talking about uh, an app, a genetics app, which was launched in Kigali last year in September uh, by Vitsi students. And we find out more from uh, Murtab Hayat, who is the secretary of SCOP, and the uh, and um, George Derosha, who is um, who worked on the development of the app and. Here in the following um, clip, they go into how this app actually came about. Our outreach program decided to design an app that would be easily accessible for all ages, for all types of people everywhere in the country. Our main aim was to mainly make it accessible to underprivileged schools because once you download the app, you don't need any data or internet access to use it. So we were hoping it could be used as a tool. My name is George DeRosha. I'm here at the SBIMB as well, and I'm doing my PhD here, and I'm the secretary for SCOPE and on the app development team. So how this app came about is it was a wonderful project inspired by our school learners. We visit schools and we give them a rundown of how DNA works, what it can be used for, how it affects our health and other traits. And we found that the learners were often left wanting more and we wanted a way to reach them outside of our own visits. And we figured every learner nowadays has a cell phone in their pocket and they spend more time looking at that than their own books. So why don't we develop an app to reach them from that point of view too? Now, this group realized that there was a knowledge gap uh, in schools with regards to how biology and genetics is learned at schools. And they realized that if they were to tackle uh, the educational deficits as far as genetics are concerned, they would be well on their way to debunking myths and misconception, misconceptions uh, one child at a time. And uh, here they're going to educating on uh, misconceptions around genetics. We hope that the app could help eradicate certain myths surrounding genetics and inheritance. For instance, a very simple one would be in a lot of cultures, a woman gets the blame for giving birth to a boy or a girl. So the app could help educate communities on the fact that it's not actually the woman's fault, it's actually the man's fault (laughs) because his sperm decides whether it's an X or a Y or a female or a male. Also things concerning albinism and other traits that may cause a lot of issues in communities but we're also hoping that it would help students who are studying genetics particularly in grade 11 and grade 12 because the, the app starts from a very basic overview which is what you do in high school to a more broader world-based overview and how genetics applies in the world. I think everyone has an inherent question about DNA. DNA is where we come from while we are like who we like and we all got it from our parents and they got it from their parents and they got it from their parents so it's a fundamental root of our identity. Mm-hmm. Everyone is curious about it, everyone knows something about it but a lot of people don't exactly know how it works and we hope that the app can help explain some of that mystery. Yeah, for instance we cannot make you Spider-Man. No. Uh, which is often the questions you get when people hear you're studying genetics like, oh can you clone me? Yeah. Oh can we get superpowers? Because <laughs> yeah. everyone's heard of CRISPR and then you can gene edit yeah. your genes so the questions arise from that. So I think there are a lot of misconceptions as well regarding the genetic technology that currently exists. Another big genetics misconception, according to DeRosha, is that DNA among various ethnic groups is different and therefore 
people think it should be classified differently and according to that uh, classification. But he says this could not be any further from the truth. And in the following insert, he goes into how um, your, your genes create their own path. Basically, the, the combination of genes you inherit from your parents matters as well. So we all have two copies of each gene, effectively. Sometimes genes that work will override the others. Sometimes genes that don't override and form their own traits. So depending on which ones you inherited from your parents, the pattern defines what you will experience. And this yeah. is explained in the inheritance. It's in patterns. Yeah. So, so one of your parents either has that and you'll, you'll ask them, can you taste this? Did you taste it this way? If they don't, that just might mean that they're hiding the one that lets them, but they passed that respective one down. Hayat and Darosha explained that sometimes not all that we are told is true and that just because cancer runs in the family does not necessarily mean you will develop cancer in your lifetime and because a number of variables such as diet environment and upkeeping among many other things determine what the general well-being of an individual would be like and this he he goes into what are the many other factors that could contribute to one's well-being a lot of people think that their genetics gives them an innate resistance to cancer and other types of diseases. So people will say, I can smoke, my grandmother smoked and she lived till 90. But absolutely, those are fallacies. People believe that they have strong DNA, but the risks are always there. Mm-hmm. Um, your own DNA may not reflect what they had. You've inherited different copies, different traits, different combinations, so you can't get around that. Yeah, and yeah. that's because certain diseases are polygenic, yeah. meaning there are multiple genes that um, affect Uh, the development of a disease Mm. so just because your parents did not have cancer doesn't mean you cannot get cancer at all and vice versa just because your parents had cancer doesn't mean you definitely will develop it there are many many factors that um, affect this Uh, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't look after yourself (laughs) you should be vigilant and go for regular checkups and a unique trait found in the African population is uh, is a condition called brown oculocutaneous albinism, which is a group of conditions affecting the pigmentation of the skin, the hair, and the eyes. And researchers have identified multiple types of oculocutaneous oculocutaneous albinism. Let's get that right, which are characterized by their skin, their hair, and eye color changes. And type one of this kind of uh, uh, albinism is characterized by white hair, very pale skin and light colored irises. Now, baby Sinazon Jingila, who is almost two years of age, has some distinct characteristics of type 2 um, oculotaneous um, albinism and his features are a creamy white color reddish brown hair and greenish eyes and this is his story told by his parents Sabelon Chingila and Bonye Gazulu. the eyes are from his side of the family but the skin color it's both the family my late father and my grandmother both have blue eyes 
So the baby takes it from my father and my grandmother. My grandmother is half colored and half Zulu. So it happens with Nobongega, it's still the same thing because mother like half colored and half Zulu. So the baby about genetically eats at her genes, not just her genes, but her genes. Confusing with different goods, how you'll both don't have green eyes, but how come in Ghana? Maybe Nama eyes are Ganji, maybe like a snake. I get no, it happens with your bone. We end up saying, Why this baby can't be yours? Why be Namika? So it not that baby is mine, it just happens with Amishaka, our Babam, and Amishaka, because I myself understand with my parents' side, the Goganjalo. Because my mother is plain, plain, plain black eyes from my mother's side, the Abazu, but from my father's side, we mix. That's why my grandmother has my eyes. I got so greenish or bluish. You can't really tell the other because it's mixed green and blue. Yeah, well, and it's exactly like the baby's eyes. I was only expecting the color, but not the eyes. Yeah, it came as a surprise. Because I was scared, thinking that maybe he won't see, or maybe she's blind in the way. And then he had a problem with eyes as well. Because I, I used to use ointments in his eyes all the time. She also used to send me to like she's worried Maybe the baby's is gonna maybe turn blind or maybe something bad. Can I always used to tell her give it some time. Now when I was still a baby, I used to because I knew good from before he was born. I was expecting his eyes because my older brother. Yeah, it was a lady smith who is dark in complexion, but the baby has similar eyes, like how my baby does. Type 3 includes a form of albinism called Rufus Oculocutaneous Albinism. It's the most common albinism we are mostly exposed to which usually affects dark skinned people um, and affected people have reddish brown skin ginger or or red hair and uh, hazel or brine brown irises now type 3 is often associated with milder vision abnormalities uh, more than other forms of uh, this kind of albinism Another condition where that is very true is albinism. Big, big myths surrounding albinism in Africa. It's really awful and we hope to empower people with genetics to understand what's really happening there. Now albinism we know very well is a recessive trait. A recessive trait is where you need two copies of a non-functional gene or altered gene in order for the trait to manifest. Whereas other genetic conditions such as dwarfism are dominant, having only one copy of an altered gene will be enough for that condition to manifest in the child. That's actually how albinism presents often and parents end up shocked and confused. Two parents with absolutely normal pigmentation will have a child with albinism and then worry what happened? Was it a mistake? Did I eat something wrong? Is this a curse, etc.? But really, what's happening is they just pass down their respective hidden copy of their genes to this child. And so the trait is manifest in the child, and that's all it is. It's a single gene change in the production of melanin. Here the pair explains why black genes matter and why there is a need to study African DNA samples to come up with solutions uh, for precision medication. Why we mainly look at our local genetics, our African genetics, because of the gap in genetic data out there. So any European data or information we have on genetics, which is European, cannot be applied to South African because our African populations are a lot older and therefore they have a lot more variation. Just to explain the basis of this, all humans on the planet share a substantial overlap of DNA, but since all humans evolved from African continents and left Africa, 
tribes that have been here longer and have developed in the modern peoples today have maintained their longer sequences, whereas people who have moved elsewhere in the world have picked up mutations, changes, even gotten shorter lengths of DNA compared to what we see in Africa today. The most well-studied populations in the world are Europeans and because a lot of money and research has been pumped into studying these groups, which is why scientists understand their genetic structures uh, better. That's why they understand their genetic structures better because uh, closely related populations share some variations between each other. However, because genomic studies in African populations have been lagging behind, geneticists have not not been able to provide and deliver suitable medication appropriate for uh, African population genetic structures. A dual disease burden that we're facing right now is although we have HIV and TB running rampant, we've got heart disease and diabetes and cancer rapidly catching up in killing people and causing health effects. Those are such a strong genetic element that we needed to have started studying these years ago. So we're about to face a new health crisis in South mm-hmm. Africa. And here, Daroka takes us through who are the other people involved in uh, how the app was built. We had two main groups, coding group, which George was in charge of, and the content generation group, which I was in charge of. So all content was created by all members of SCOPE, which is the students here at the SPIMB, as well as Vits Human Genetics, based at the NHLS in Bramfontein. So pictures, words, background, drawings, everything was created by our team. And the coding as well, so George had to, maybe you can elucidate more on on how you had to learn HTML5. It's incredible what you can learn for free on the internet these days. I just went on to some sites and took some courses to learn how to code in HTML5. It's one of the most commonly used languages around the world. It basically encodes most web pages that we interact with today. So learning a bit of HTML5 and CSS, which is a structuring language, I learned how to build up the framework for our information displays that we put into the app. That's what we plug our content pages into to display them nicely on a phone. We then build those codes together into a little package called an APK. We used a tool to do this. It's available through Adobe. It's called Adobe Phone Gap Build, which packs your code together in order for an Android phone to understand it, which can then be put up on the Android store for anyone to download. Easy peasy, install and run. Lastly, this is what the team hopes for their app. So the app we've been speaking about this whole time is called Genscope, the player on our own name. One of our ex-students, Marla, she designed Backpage as well as our logo. Yeah, extremely talented artist and geneticist and now data scientist. So Genscope, its basic landing page has a few sections for the user to go through. The basics of genetics, advanced topics, and real-world examples. So if you start off with basics, it asks you the question, do you want to know more about genetics? And you tap on basics. It gives you some more sections to look at. Starting with the section titled You. Now this is a great section because it begins with you. Where do you come from? How did you come into being? And it explains that just like all things in this world, you have to come from parentage. Someone has to create you. And your parents create you by passing down their genetic material, their DNA. And then we break down how we study it. Just like houses are made of bricks and smaller components, our bodies too are made out of cells. 
The team is also making a call out to interested individuals who would like to assist in translating this uh, app or the language used in the app, which is English, uh, to various South African uh, official languages. And this is where we leave the story for tonight. And uh, tonight we do not have unscience because we want to go into uh, the second story uh, in our show Uh, but let us just take a really quick break and then after the break we will come back with a story that was done by Masibulele Lunika This is the Science Inside Professor Ngoza Jova herself said this is probably the biggest breakthrough in South African dermatology. Her groundbreaking study in collaboration with other researchers titled Variant PAD13 in Central Centrifugal Cisotrial Alopecia was published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine, one of the highest impact journals in medical science. She elaborates more on this research and what triggered it. So there's the skin conditions and hair conditions are common. And I think we observed in the last 10, 15 years that we are seeing a number of patients with hair loss compared to, you know, the early 80s. So what we found in some epidemiological study that we did in KZN, we found that hair disorders were like now in the top five conditions that we're seeing, whereas in the past they were not even featured in the top 10 conditions that we're seeing. So we also started seeing this condition called central centrifugal secretorial alopecia, which is basically a hair loss which occurs on the vertex of the scalp and uh, is seen commonly in African women. So this condition has been described before for a long time. We would tell patients that we don't know precisely what's causing CCPA, as I have described it, as a progressive permanent hair loss condition affecting women of African descent between the ages of 30 and 65. So in the past, they used to call it hot comb alopecia because it was diagnosed in a handful of women, African-Americans, I think in 1968. So they attributed it to be caused by the use of the head comb because it was a hot comb. It was used for straightening hair so that it's easy to comb. So when we started seeing a number of patients with this, then we asked ourselves, and I think one or two patients that came to see us, and I realized that actually none of them had any history of use of any chemicals or any weeds or any hair extensions. So that's what uh, actually triggered the interest. So we did biopsies and then found that all the patients in this family had the same condition. But does this condition only affect people or women of African descent, one may wonder? And is there any explanation for why that is? Yes, we, we haven't, it has not been described in other ethnic groups, it's mainly uh, uh, individuals of African descent, as to why we still don't know. But we do know that certain conditions occur in certain populations and in certain, among certain genders or certain areas. So uh, we still don't know why it affects uh, African people of African descent. Of course, this is a groundbreaking discovery for the scientific community and in medicine. Can you just talk us a little bit on what this means for the sciences and understanding this particular condition? Yeah, well, for us, it's great to know this because, as I mentioned now, instead of seeing these patients with this condition and say, you know, we don't know what's wrong with you, we are seeing it, but we can't, you know, say what it causes now, we can affirmatively say it is a genetic condition, meaning that it is inherited in certain, it will okay, certain families. 
And we can also say that uh, because some of the patients that we saw found that those who were excessively grooming their hair, you know, relaxing their hair, using weaves and braids and pulling their, their dreads, the condition was much more worse in those people compared to people who had were manipulating their hair less often than those. So what we can say is that for sure we, it is, it is uh, genetic and uh, if family members have this condition, they need to be extremely careful. Very interesting, Professor. And I guess the study would not have attracted interest had this condition not been that prevalent. And I'm saying this because I've also encountered it in some of my own family members. The hair loss is quite common in men, but can you just tell us a little bit more about how common this is among African women? The prevalence is about ranges between 2.7% and 5.6%. It's much more common amongst African-Americans. And in South Africa, a study that was done in Cape Town by Prof. Kumalo, it showed about 2.7%. Now, talking about the treatment available to prevent or cure it, I understand this is one of the first steps to actually finding it, and it may be a bit tough considering that it is, in fact, a genetic condition. But is there any available treatment at this point? If anyone has got a problem with hair loss, they need to see a hair specialist or dermatologist as soon as possible. Because once you lose your hair, you know, and your scalp is shiny, there's not much you can do because the hair root has been destroyed. So we always treat hair loss as an emergency in a way because we want to abort it and use treatment that can stop the treatment, the, the, the hair loss. So if we can, there are certain tablets and medications and creams and lotions that we can use, but those uh, uh, therapeutic interventions will not bring the hair that you have lost back, but it will stop the disease from progression. However, despite using those products, if a person or individual continues to groom the hair in the ways that I have mentioned, then the hair loss becomes more rapid and much more progressive and much more extensive. We are looking at research now to see whether we can find a test to be able to, so that we're able to detect this condition early and possible look at some form of gene therapy and hopefully we will get to that stage. Of course, it's a small area and the disease is burned out and meaning that it's not active anymore and uh, there's no inflammation. There are There is a possibility of doing hair transplant depending on the area, on the individual, the certain criteria that you have to meet. Unfortunately, you know, we will be able to actually uh, do hair transplant because we've just gone for the training uh, we'll be able to assist with that in certain individuals who could be advisable in. And out of curiosity, does this condition uh, actually lead up to any other additional health risks for individuals affected by it? There are no health risks really that are associated with hair loss, except that it affects the, the person, the individual psychologically, and it affects the quality of life because it means the person who's lost their hair has to wear a wig all the time and they have to camouflage or you use dukes to cover, you know, the, the, the area of hair loss. Now that is certainly good news that there are no additional health risks. Now we chat to Tande Kamgoma, a housewife and a former teacher who has had first-hand encounter with CCCA and was also part of this study to get a better picture of how this affects women. Firstly, it's, it's, a, it's like a bit of a shock, especially if you have had a nice hair, you know. Now all of a sudden your hair is falling, becoming bold. Definitely the confidence goes and obviously now you 
always have to hide your head. Uh, say, for example, um, well, if I'm, 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 I'm not at home, I use wigs. But sometimes at home, you just want to be free. But now I've got my little scarf that I use around at home because even there, I'm not like happy to be seen. That is Tandegamgoma, who has had a first-hand encounter with CCCA. And she also said her condition was not as severe and that she managed to get some form of treatment that helped her. On her research, Professor Ajlova did collaborate with other researchers. She elaborates on that a bit more. Research of this scale and extent cannot happen without collaboration. And I think diversity in research collaboration is great because People come from different backgrounds, come up with different ideas. So I'm eternally grateful to my colleagues, Professor Eli Sprecher from Tel Aviv University, who is a dermatologist and geneticist. Professor Amy McMichael, who is a dermatologist, who is a hair, a hair guru with a special interest in hair. She's a professor and head of department from North Carolina uh, University of Wake Forest. And of course, uh, my other colleagues who are scientists, uh, Dr. Ofa Sarik, who's also from Tel Aviv. So we uh, coordinated and collaborated with them. We had, I had patients from South Africa, and Professor Amy had some patients from um, North America, African Americans. And together, we were able to come up with about 60 patients or so that we had uh, analyzed. And I'm also grateful to the patients. Uh, South African patients who agreed to be part of the study because I think without them, we wouldn't be able to come up with this discovery and all the support that I got from my department and, of course, from my family and friends. There we have it for our main story this week, folks. Thank you to Professor Jlova and kudos on the amazing work. I am Masibulele Luniga. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the Science Inside. Welcome back to the Science Inside. And uh, before the break, we heard a story about hair loss. And uh, that was Masibulele's story. And uh, before that, we also spoke about a genetics app that was developed by Vitz students. But this is where we leave our content uh, for this week. A big thank you to all of our guests who were featured on tonight's show, including Professor Ngoza Lova, Dean of the University of KwaZulu-Natal, Maktab Hayat and George Darosha from the Witt University. And last but not least, our team behind the scenes is production by Masbulele Lunika, Campion Zarima and Tech by Gudwano Serane. You can get our... Um, Show on podcastjournalism.co.za forward slash science and social media. We are on Facebook as The Science Inside. You can also tweet us at VowFM. The Science Inside is produced by the Fitz Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. Good night. The Science Inside Podcast.